This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Hi, it's Mark Rako. Fashion is your business's sister podcast at Mouth Media, American Fashion Podcast, recently published a fantastic conversation about powering fashion's future, technology tools impacting today's fashion industry, which was a panel discussion recorded as part of the Fashion Innovate program at the Tex World USA 2020 trade show in New York. We here at FIYB thought it would be very useful for our audience as well. So enjoy and have a great week. From New York City, you are listening to Fashion Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the fashion industry. Recorded on location. This is American Fashion Podcast. I'm Charles Beckwith, and this episode includes a recording of a panel that I moderated at the recent Text World trade show here in New York City, Text World USA. The panel was titled Powering Fashion's Future Tools Impacting Today's Fashion Industry. And uh, of course, I, I had to invite Andrew Wyatt, who's on a recent episode of this show, uh, who's the CEO of Kala. Uh, we also had uh, Melissa Rusnek, who is a... Uh, expert in the field of textile waste, and Theodora Nicole, she's the marketing manager for fashion and apparel at Lectra, and Natasha Frank, who's the CEO of Eon, which uh, developed the circular ID system. And uh, Natasha is the first one who you'll hear speaking. I think this was really interesting. Uh, We we had people kind of glued to their seats by the end. So um, have a listen. It's a little bit long, but definitely worth it if you want to know where things are going. Hi, everyone. Um, Nice to meet you all on Sunday morning. I'm Natasha. I'm founder and CEO of a startup called Eon, and we power connected products with the vision to give every product an identity, kind of like a birth certificate for every item, and use that information or that product's identity to make sure that that product can be managed sustainably from the moment it's produced through resale and then through recycling. So we are essentially a connected products platform um, and we work with global brands like H&M and PVH, um, Target, um, luxury brands, giving those products identities such that they can be managed through circular economy. And our main focus is really being able to identify products in circular economy such that they can be resold such that products can be recycled. And all of those businesses processes require a lot of data. So when we create connected products, we make sure that they have all of the data in them such that they can be managed through circular economy. Now, when we're talking about data, you collect a lot of data. Everybody collects a lot of data, but sorting through it is very difficult. Are you also addressing that issue? Yeah. So for the past year, we led a global collaboration um, with leading brands, retailers, resellers, um, different circular economy partners to basically define and codify for industry what data do you actually need on a product to resell it and recycle it and make sure that that product can essentially come back into the system, right? And so what we defined was called the circular ID protocol. And basically, when you go to resell a product, 
the reseller needs data to be able to say, what was the original price of this item? Which brand made this product? Like right now, resale operates very ad hoc. It's not really fully operationalized across industry. There's no digital infrastructure or foundation to support it. Same with recycling. Right now, recyclers feel a product by hand and they say, oh, well, well I think this feels like cotton. I'm not sure of the blend. They need data to do their jobs too. So what we've done in the fashion industry is we've created a really good system for identification of products from cut to sew to sale. But then after we sell them, we remove any form of identification. And essentially, that means that after we sell products, they're lost. There's no data associated with them. There's no accountability. There's no digital infrastructure anymore after point of sale. And so what we specialize in is, one, how to get that data onto the product. And then what's a little bit unique is how that data actually gets from a brand to a reseller, to a recycler, such that when that recycler scans that product, they can access that full breadth of data. And so our specialty and why we had to build this circular ID protocol with industry leadership was to make sure that we could exchange data in the same structure between these parties, between brands and resellers and recyclers. And it's that basically communication between different players in the fashion value chain that powers a circular system. Okay, so uh, tell us a little bit about Lectra. Sure. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Teodora Nikolai, or Tia for short, and I oversee marketing for Lectra's North American fashion and apparel business. Um, if you're not familiar with Lectra, we are a global technology provider and partner for brands, retailers, and manufacturers all over the world. So um, over the last almost 50 years, we've worked with everyone from Chanel and Louis Vuitton to Levi's, Seven for All Mankind, Abercrombie and Fitch. Um, I mean, brands big, small, and global, as well as regional, national, etc. We support our customers throughout the entire product lifecycle. And what I mean by that is that our technology offer covers everything from design all the way through production. So digital textile and style design, 2D pattern making, 3D prototyping, marker making, uh, cut order management to all the way through the smart factory. So some of the most advanced, if not the most advanced um, manufacturing equipment and processes um, available on the market and to our customers. Um, Lectra, again, has been in business for almost 50 years. And from the beginning, I think um, the word innovation has been kind of thrown around as a marketing term for a very long time. And um, for us as a brand and as a business, it's very much kind of at the heart of our business. Um, we put our money where our mouth is, essentially. And over the last three years specifically, um, our team of R&D experts, over 300 people in-house um, based in our Bordeaux headquarters, have really been focusing on two very specific pieces of that product lifecycle for our fashion and apparel customers. And the first one is product lifecycle management, so uh, PLM for short, which essentially connects um, internal teams like design, product development, pattern making with uh, sourcing teams as well as external suppliers um, to really streamline processes and eliminate waste not only from a material perspective but also from a financial and time waste perspective as well. And the second is, um, you know, very focused investment in bringing the on-demand business model, which we believe can solve a lot of the challenges for the industry that the industry is facing today, whether you're a brand or a retailer or a manufacturer, to um, reality. And I think on-demand has been an 
a topic that's been discussed for many, many years now, um, although a lot of that conversation has been kind of um, dreams, wishes, and hopes that one day it would actually be a profitable business model um, in the industry and one that can be widely adopted. But over the last three years, I think the technology has really evolved to a place um, where it is very much so possible to not only run on-demand um, business models like made-to-order, so really not producing a product until it is actually ordered and paid for by the end consumer, to personalized product, customized product, and even to uh, made-to-measure product. And really for us, we believe that the successful companies, whether you're a brand or retailer or manufacturer, um, but especially on the brand and retailer side, are in the next now and in the next 10 years and even into the future, are those who can really build a flexible and agile supply chain that can address the real consumer demand and the real consumer need. Um, and through that process, they will not only become more profitable and increase their margins, um, but they can also have a huge impact on how fashion does business today. So really... Uh, taking down the number of returns and overstock and, of course, at the end of the day, waste, which is... So what are your big products in the fashion space? What, what do you sell the most of to people in the fashion business? Um, it really depends. So I think uh, it depends. If we're talking about brands, we, we work with a lot of brands on the digital design side, and um, a very large number of our customers in North America use our digital uh, 2D pattern-making um, offer, which has is really for brands who um, not only want to take control back of their patterns and their product development in-house, which has been outsourced for many, many years here, um, to really control the quality of their product that ends up at the, you know, with the end consumer. Um, we also work and are very well known for our cutting equipment, so our highly connected cloud-based um, software and hardware that is some of the most advanced cutting and manufacturing equipment in the world. So if you have a couple really hours to burn, everything. search that on YouTube. It's so cool. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I think we were experts in automation, especially in the smart factory, um, and we're very well known for that all over the world. But on the software side, I think um, the product development piece is really very much at the heart of our offer, and our that that offer and solution has been used for almost 18 years by everyone from Balenciaga to, again, some of the very well-known denim brands um, and so on. Okay. Uh, and speaking of connecting all these things, uh, Andrew, what you are doing is kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> Um, Thank you. I don't know if you all have been watching what Cala is doing. Their website is ca.la. Um, there's some videos on there that are amazing. Um, so with Andrew's platform, Cala, it's as easy to set up a fashion brand's infrastructure as it is to create an Instagram account. This is insane. Like, the, the leap that has been taken in the last 12 months is just immense. Um, Andrew, tell us a little bit more about that and, and what you're doing. First of all, thanks for having me on here. It was super fun. I actually did my first podcast the other day with Charles. You should go check it out. Um, so we, as a company, sort of thought about, you know, the uh, today's 15-year-old or 13-year-old that is of the Snapchat generation, TikTok, all that good stuff. They're going to very shortly become the next generation of fashion designers. 
what kind of technology are they going to expect? What kind of experience are they going to expect when it comes to taking that creative vision and turning it into reality? Um, it doesn't look anything like the way it works today. <laughs> and so the internet's done this amazing thing where now anyone can, you know, from their parents' basement or their dorm room, start building an audience online through these platforms I just mentioned, Instagram, um, YouTube. Um, and then there's another, other great tools like Shopify um, and Squarespace that make it really easy to you know, build an online presence and, and e-commerce and transact. Um, when it comes to creating great products, though, you have the like, print-on-demand solutions, uh, you know, Teespring and what, what have you. And then besides that, it's thousands and thousands of emails um, going to LA and getting uh, you know, $500 for a technical design, $500 for a pattern, $500 for a sample, $500 for your fabric, and you end up with a product that you're not even really happy with. Um, and so we've tried to kind of like start from scratch and provide um, what we're calling the world's first fashion house technology. The idea being that now anyone can spin up a fashion house that's scaled to their needs um, and, and basically you know, can be scaled on demand. So on one side, Cal is a full-stack web-based design and collaboration tool that makes it super easy to get your design idea out digitally, no matter if you're classically trained at Parsons or if you've never designed anything before in your life. And then on the other side of the coin, we are a, a global uh, managed marketplace of over 60 different manufacturers in 10 different countries of varying scales. Some specialize in less than 100 unit production. Some can do tens of thousands of work for some of the companies we've already been discussing. Um, we also have 25 development partners, um, two different fulfillment partners, and financing partners. And so what we've tried to do, um, and it's been an iterative process building toward to where we are today, um, is just look at, you know, once we solve this piece for our, our customers, what are their next biggest pain points? And so once you make it really easy to get a, sa a great sample, it's, well, I want to get my production units. And once you actually have the production units, well, it's, I don't want to get stuck in customs. I want to, you know, not be fulfilled out of my house. And so we brought in a warehouse. And so um, that's kind of been our approach, very, you know, iterative. And not a lot of people have heard of us, but um, we're working with some pretty cool brands, and, and we're really excited about the last couple of years. Well, you were very much in stealth. Like, your website did not say much for a long time. It, it looked intriguing, but it was, it was kind of big on promise and not showing what you're doing. But, exactly. We, but now we, you're showing it. We want to, really really you know, not talk about it, but be about it. You know. Can you talk about your thought process for, for staying kind of in stealth mode as a fashion startup, a fashion tech startup? Did, did people advise you to do that, or why, why did you decide to, to kind of be stealth? So I've been, I've been in the tech game for about seven years now, which is insane to say. Um, and was part of a massively successful and now failed startup called Ship with a Y. And, uh, and so one of the things we did was we got a product out really quick. And, and um, you know, we employed the fake it till you make it. And, uh, and it took us a long time to actually, you know, get the full infrastructure in place. And so with Cal, we wanted to make sure that, you know, we were able to provide um, an amazing experience for all of our designers that are working with us, all of our factories that we're working with, um, and that's not something you can do overnight. And so we started off, you know, very small, very focused scope of what we were doing with a very small number of partners. Um, and then we started building on that. And, and ultimately now we're at a place where we feel like we have the right infrastructure to start onboarding more and more brands. And so now we're starting to tell people a little bit. Okay. Uh, so Mel, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do as a consultant, what you're concerned about in the fashion business? Sure. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everybody. 
Um, so my name is Melissa Rusinak. I go by Mel. Um, I have a master's in environmental management and sustainability. Um, in graduate school, I focused on waste and learned about um, all the environmental, social, economic problems in textile supply chains. Um, and so I published a paper basically suggesting that if you can have full traceability in textile supply chains um, and record that information on a blockchain network, that that can help facilitate closed-loop systems. Um, and so currently I'm working in uh, waste diversion um, for a company called Diverse Recycling Solutions. And we consult for commercial businesses in the city of New York, helping them comply with local laws pertaining to waste and recycling um, the city actually has pretty good textile um, waste laws. So if you are generating, if more than 10% of your waste stream is textile waste, the city requires you to find a responsible end market, meaning that those materials are not going to end up in a, in a landfill or an incinerator. Um, I'm also involved in um, a pilot project with the United Nations, and so what we're trying to do is enhance traceability and transparency in um, garment and footwear supply chains. Um, specifically, we're starting with cotton value chains and also looking at um, leather value chains. This is a two-year pilot project, also looking at how we can utilize blockchain. Um, but right now, um, like the beginning stages are defining kind of the qualitative requirements, so getting everyone on the same page about what types of data should be recorded and then how we can use that information to close the loop. Um, and when I came back from graduate school, I found um, Eon and Natasha's um, project, and so that's been really inspiring for me. And um, I, you know, I think of it almost as like convergent evolution. You know, people are kind of all coming to the same ideas at the same time, just trying to think outside the box, um, doing things how you know traditionally um, it's not really going to work in the future. Um, and so, just seeing how all the stakeholders can collaborate to again close the loop in uh, the 21st century and try to reduce waste on top of all of the upstream impacts um, that we have. And finally, if I get enough enrollment, I'm going to be teaching um, a class at Baruch College about international trade. Um, and my focus for that course is going to be looking at um, recycling markets. Uh, when people think about international trade, maybe you know, waste and recycling is not the first thing that comes to your mind. And so I'm excited to have an opportunity to engage with young people and explain you know, once you take something and put it in a bin, that's just the beginning of a very, very long um, journey that that material is going to take. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to discuss further about how tech can help facilitate all these things. Okay. Um, I, I was following something where uh, I think China closed to certain recycling coming into the country? Uh, yeah. So that is called the National Sword Policy, and that was in 2017. Um, China stopped accepting a lot of post-consumer materials, specifically um, certain grades of plastic and certain grades of paper. Um, and that's had really tremendous global effects. So what would happen is we would take our materials, bail them up, and send them to China, and then they would process them for recycling. And it was actually pretty efficient. So China would send us goods in these big container ships, and then we would backhaul these materials for recycling. 
But what happens is, and these are other commodities like you know paper and plastic, um, more common recyclable items and textiles, but basically everything was so highly contaminated on top of a lot of domestic factors for China, like they just simply didn't have the infrastructure to process because it's America, right? Obviously, we produce a lot of waste, but then you have Canada and Europe and other places also shipping their materials to China, and they just simply didn't have the infrastructure to handle that anymore. So they called it the national sword. They're like, no more. Um, so then we tried to find other end markets for these materials, so other places in Asia. Um, and so now we see places like India also imposing restrictions on what types of materials they will accept because basically things are highly contaminated and you need serious infrastructure to handle all of these different materials. So it's a good opportunity for um, domestic end markets. So by end market, I mean like a place that a thing can go to actually get recycled. It's not good enough to say, oh, it's recyclable. Well, you need someone who wants that material, who actually has the infrastructure to process it in some way that they can uh, maintain value and then resell it. So it's just another commodity. And if there's no actual value in that, then it's going to be landfilled or it's going to be incinerated. And that's how you see all of the, that's part of the reason why you see all the environmental problems that we have today. Okay. So uh, let's kind of dive into our, our seven phases of the, the whole process. Um, ideation, design, what what are the new tech tools there and, and where did we kind of come from? And we, we came from sketching and designers putting together mood boards and designers who just talk about what they want and somebody else executes it. And then there's people who are kind of in between all that stuff. But there's there's tools in that space. W- what are you all seeing? What, what are you building? I mean, I think just Google Fashion 3D, and you'll see about uh, 20 different new products that are really exciting. Um, you know, I, we spend a lot of time talking to designers about, like, Clo, which is a really interesting one. Um, browseware is kind of industry standard. Um, well, Clo is, when I looked at what they were doing, you can put in the textile into the computer, and it knows how it streps and stretches and how it drapes, so you can kind of have your pattern built in 3D and then it kind of flows the way it's supposed to and you can kind of pinch the fabric in the computer and see what it does. Um, And the other ones are also approaching that. And uh, I think Clo also has a thing where you can, um, if the fabric's not in the system already, you can use their tool to to see how it stretches and that stuff to input that in, which is, um, it's amazing that this is really digitizing. We're, we're actually digitizing yeah. how this happens, which um, I think there was a rush to do it. And a lot of approaches failed because they didn't take into account the fact that it's fabric. Sure. I think, um, so Close is an amazing 3D company. I think um, the way, so Close started as, um, I believe, in video games. So the renderings are incredible. And um, they're really, really great at 3D for merchandising purposes. And I think um, when we talk at, so Lecture, we have a 3D product as well. Um, However, I think it's really important when we start talking about 3D is one, um, you cannot design in 3D today. Um, no tool exists to actually build a pattern in a 3D way. You actually have to have the 2D pattern built um, in order to render a 3D version of that garment and see um, how it drapes and how the fabric stretches, um, which is incredibly useful for sampling and cut down on an immense amount of time waste and material waste as well. 
because you're really removing a lot of that uh, physical sampling out of the process. But I think um, if we're talking about the future of design, I think what we hear from our customers a lot is they want to be able to design in 3D. Unfortunately, we're just not there yet. Um, in, on one side, we really believe that that skilled um, kind of labor of understanding how a garment is actually put together and how patterns are developed and you know, the quality, that's really where the quality is built into a garment. And I think that has a lot of implications on waste and um, quality products not being thrown out at such a high rate as, you know, some some brands or, I don't want to say throwaway products, but fast fashion essentially is not, that quality is not built into a garment. You wear it once, twice, and you throw it out. Um, and so that pattern making skill is incredibly important to the product development process, and it begins even... Uh, further back in the design process Um, and there's definitely technology there that can address that piece but as of today I think when we look at the future um, it's really about bringing the design process with the 3D and kind of merging the two So what's preventing what's the barrier right now to being able to design in 3D? I think it's the tooling Um, so like where Clo breaks for me is like I downloaded the free trial. It was fun. But you have to actually know how to build a pattern and basically have that sort of like pattern-making skill set. And not a lot of designers actually do um, have that. And so, you know, I probably spent a week messing around with it and felt like I, I really didn't get anywhere. I'm trying to, like, sew together these little things digitally and craziness. And so that's kind of where it breaks for me is, like, the, the usability. And so I think what, what Tia's kind of alluded to when it comes to not being able to design in 3D is kind of that, like... Maybe it's in AR, maybe it's VR, but that full kind of like, you know, on the dress form type experience um, in a digital context. And I think we're probably farther away from that than, than, you know, even we would like, but it's hard. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I think the skill set of product development and pattern making um, is very scarce today. You know, for many, many years, especially in North America, brands and retailers have been outsourcing that piece of the development process. For whatever reason, whether that was, um, you know, a lack of skills and labor um, or for financial. Cheaper. Yep. Much cheaper to to outsource that. It's had a huge impact on the quality of garments. Um, If you look at what happens when you don't control your patterns and you're sending your patterns out to three different manufacturers making the same product, they can all turn out completely different in terms of fit and quality. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that skill, you know, today to use 3D, you have to understand how a garment fits together um, and really be able to assemble pattern pieces in a 3D format. And therefore, then you can really look at how it drapes on a, on a 3D form. So With, why are designers asking for it, for the ability to design in 3D like that? Are they, they wanting to, to have a fabric-like thing that doesn't have all the waste? Or what, what's the desire there? It's sexy. It's super sexy. Okay. Yeah, it's super sexy. Um, I think a lot of the new kind of generation of designers are coming out of school and expect technology in place. Um, And, you know, I no longer have to sketch or I do sketch, but look at this. I could really see how a fabric will drape from the moment I kind of conceptualize a garment. I mean, it's definitely sexy. It would definitely save a lot of time. Um, 
but the reality is is that there's no magic button that you can really press today to go from idea to a developed pattern and product that's ready for production. And I'm not sure that we want that. I think a lot of that skill set um, and you know, again, that going back to quality and fit would really disappear if there was that button that you could automatically press. So really quick, pull in the audience here. Raise your hand if you're a classically trained animator at, like, uh, you know, Pixar or something. <laughs> All right, raise your hand if you're a classically trained pattern maker. Ooh, hey, let's talk later. Yeah. Okay, for, the, for everyone else, let's talk about ideation and design in a way that's perhaps meaningful for you. And this is, at Cal, what we talk a lot about, which is the um, this but that. So Virgil Abloh um, from Louis Vuitton and Off-White, um, he did a pretty interesting Harvard talk, which you should also watch on YouTube. I need to get some like, sponsorship from YouTube, I think. But, um, and what he said that all of his design ideas start in WhatsApp. So he'll take a photo of something else in the world, and he'll draw on it a little bit, he'll add some text, and then he'll kick it off to his design team of like you know, 10 or 20 people, and they come back to him and mash it up in a bunch of ideas and you know, do an illustrator or what have you. Um, and that, when I heard that, I was like, ah, oh, that makes sense. Anyone can do that. Anyone can say, hey, I want this shoe, but instead I want it to have you know, just one sole, and you know, here's a bunch of comments. And so um, that's what we really focus on is how do we make it extremely easy to capture things in the world that we see every day, um, inspiration from archive pieces or, or latest pieces, and then how do we annotate that up so that it's really clear you know, with measurements and comments what you know, I actually want. Yeah after talking to so many people in the fashion business doing the podcast that it's very clear that pattern makers and technical designers and the logistics people really are the unsung heroes of the fashion business. I mean, the, the ability to keep all that math and geometry in your head when you're designing a, designing a garment technically, I don't know how they do it. My brain doesn't do that. <laughs> I was thinking about Pinterest. Pinterest kind of has been a tool that everybody seems to be playing with lately when they're thinking about what they're going to do and, and kind of pulling images together and, and searching for images for inspiration. I mean, the, the idea of, of getting inspiration um, in a media-saturated world, I wonder how much we need to step back from the media-saturated world to, to actually create things. Um, you guys have any thoughts about that? I mean, that's kind of a... I have lots of thoughts, but I'll let someone else go. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Well, just to address that, I think yeah. Pinterest um, is so successful because as our society continues to kind of evolve, we are always looking for a personalized space where we can kind of build our own um, version of who we are and what we like and um, really go to for inspiration. And I think it's just, um, from a Pinterest perspective, I mean, I think it's just, again, part of evolution. If you look at what's happened in the music industry and everything is stream on demand, you build your own playlists, um, <clears throat> you're no longer being told by the radio or anyone else um, what to listen to. That's completely self-driven kind of um, and curated, and I think Pinterest, from an inspirational standpoint, really addresses the kind of same human wants and needs that our society and consumers want today. And then if you look at the fashion industry, um, that's very much moving towards a personalization um, kind of 
mindset as well. So consumers now really not only want a personalized experience when they visit their e-commerce retailers, um, they also want a personalized experience when they visit a brick-and-mortar store. They also want per, you know the ability to kind of participate in that design process, maybe not fully, but really be able to choose their sleeve or their color or their embroidery. Um, so I think that Pinterest has really been one of those from a media perspective or from like a tech perspective, something that's really like driven that want for personalization and that trend um, even further. So Pinterest brings in the question of intellectual property. And um, there's so much copying in the fashion business. It, it's kind of a thing that we do um, and have done for a long time. And the American fashion business was built on copying uh, French designs. But there's IP involved and, and legal issues involved with using images. And I, I think when we start to get into these platforms where everybody can create fashion, you're going to see a lot of people trying to kind of drag and drop memes and um, images from movies and things onto t-shirts and, and get them printed. And that creates legal concerns for the people who are doing the printing because those people at least should know better. What do you think about that? I think there's, you know, to kind of what you were saying a little bit, there, there's this idea that there was this once this great designer who just had this vision for these products and it came from the designer and then they had the that vision. That was a lie. Yeah. <laughs> and they had the vision and they produced the products. And now where industry is going a little bit is they're looking for data about what the customers actually want and then using that to inform the production process. So it's a little bit of a shift in just from, you know, down from this one creative mind to actually what is the customer sharing? What are they like? on Pinterest? What products are trending in the second market? Um, what is their feedback? Where can we access data about them and how does that actually fit back into the initial production process? And so when we look at data or, you know, to your point, you when you structured this, you said there are these seven different phases. And when you work with a brand today, it's very hard to do something that's cross-department because they're very siloed. And that also means it's very hard to create communication between those different departments and really create intelligence within these companies um, because they're so siloed. So one of the things that when we when we create connected products and we put those out in the world and those products can connect to customers and customers can share information or access data from those products, that also becomes a feedback loop back to production to say, design this product this way because last time you did that it was uncomfortable. Or how do we actually start to make 360 intelligence within these companies where the companies have a link to data in the outside world? And then also... Um, the brand, the customer has a way to connect and share information with the brands. We always seem to be moving toward balance. I, I've been mm -hmm. going through a book recently called Behemoth that's about the industrial revolution to today in terms of manufacturing factories. It's a really good book. And what strikes me most as I'm going through this book is, is the size of the factories kind of pops up and down. It goes bigger and smaller, bigger and smaller, and um, the workers in the factory having uh, influence on how the factory operates, um, kind of influences how big the factories can get. The, the Russians in the 1920s, when they wanted to have industry, period, um, they had this idea of gigantism, of everything has to be big. We wanted to be the best in the world. And I think that was a bit of an ego thing because they felt a little bit backwards. They, they had made great strides in the past and then they kind of backslid against everybody else. So they wanted to catch up. And so they, they built giant factories 
very fast. They brought in Ford Motor Company to, to advise, and um, but they went too fast. They built too big too fast. And it, it's always this question of, of balance as we're trying to innovate and we're, we're trying to push everything forward. Do you build for scale or, or do you bootstrap it and figure it out first? I, I think it makes a lot more sense to kind of bootstrap and figure it out first. And I think a lot of people are, are, are coming along with that philosophy lately because of how expensive it is to, to attempt to scale. And, and then it gets very expensive when that doesn't work very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the traditional model of fashion business and production is based on these, like, mass manufacturing where brands and retailers, but brands specifically, are investing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to produce hundreds of thousands, if not millions of the same product, and then hope that the demand is there once they've already been produced. And, um, I mean, that is literally the model that this business has been built on. For That and model is canceled, just FYI. Yeah. Um, and so I think, fr from a lecture perspective, do we think that mass manufacturing is going away? No. Um, but what we think, especially as we have really been investing and, and thinking about and doing a lot of research and on, on demand, is... Um, Mass manufacturing makes sense for some product lines, and it always will make sense for some product lines. But the days of it making sense for every type of product line are over, um, and that is really what is driving all of these challenges. There's a there's a big disconnect and mismatch between the way that fashion is do still doing business and what consumers are actually purchasing. Um, and it's really about kind of uh, bridging that gap between brands and retailers and even manufacturers to only produce um, what customers actually want, which would address a lot of the waste, a lot of the risk. Um, I mean, that traditional model is obviously incredibly risky. It's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly wasteful. Um, you know, you're essentially trying to predict the unpredictable, which is what people are actually going to buy, <laughs> which is which is today, I think, silly if you really put it that simply. Can I get nerdy for a second? Absolutely. Okay. So before tech, I actually studied supply chain and operations and all that good stuff. And so um, best in class supply chain theory, if you have completely consistent demand, um, you can do really long-term projects, like build a pipeline, because over time, our consumption of oil is, is relatively consistent. Um, low volatility of demand is what they would call it. Um, when you have high volatility of demand, the best practice is to shrink your supply chain as short as possible so that you don't have you know, a million dollars worth of product on the ocean, and by the time it gets there, people don't want it anymore. And so if you look at other industries like electronics and automotive, they were doing this sort of like mass production back in the 80s, lean manufacturing, but what's happened since is it's all about competing against time because customers' preferences are changing so quickly. And so now if you look at a company like Tesla, you basically go on there, you design your car, and it, it shows up. Same thing with electronics. Now, you, you know, Apple lives or dies by how quickly they can turn around you know, the next greatest, newest innovation. And then we get back to fashion. And you know, when I started in, in fashion like three years ago, you know, it's still all happening the way that it has been happening. And, um, and so what is really exciting is looking at like, well, how can we use technology to leapfrog? And so instead of you know, taking 20 years like automotive did, how can we look at automotive as a guide 
um, and then use technology to kind of you know cheat our way to to the front of the line. Yeah, there's also the advantage of having kind of a moonshot of we want to Absolutely. get way over there and. That can, that can take you a long way, but it's also risky because that costs a lot of money to, to do that. Um, and the, the little innovations are, are almost more sustainable in, inherently. What's interesting is that like, Amazon and Zara have done this, right? They, they basically, instead of following the traditional best practices, they all, you know, Amazon has a fulfillment center 90 minutes away from everyone in the U.S. That's like you would never do that back in the day. You would have one big fulfillment center in St. Louis. And I think there's, you know, Charles and I share a, uh, a distaste for Zara, but there I, I is things that we that, can learn. I have buttons that say Zara has no soul. I, I pass them out. I have a sticker now. <laughs> Thanks to you. Um, but there's things you can learn from them. So we can hate them, of course. What does that really do? I don't know. Um, it's, it's good to respect, you know, the impact they're having on the environment. But what can we learn from their model which is, you know, instead of having a bunch of big factories, they have a lot of factories everywhere. Um, and that's something that's definitely inspiring us. Yeah, Learn I just from the devil. Like add on to that. I mean, I think if you look at, for example, what McKinsey calls the super winners, which is the top 20% of fashion and apparel companies that control like 80% of the profit in the industry. And Zara is definitely in there, if not the top company. Um, but when they studied these companies, they saw that they all had one thing in common. And, well, several things in common. One of them was that they're very much focused on speed and how to get that product from design to the consumer in the shortest amount of time. But they also saw um, that they were very much forward-thinking in terms of the business and production models that they were using for different product lines based on sales predictability. So I think there's this misconception when we talk about on-demand or on-demand comes up, whether it's made-to-order or personalized or or made-to-measure product, um, that it's really only for small brands it's only for startup brands. It's only for brands that really only need to produce in small batches. When in reality, if you really look at these super winners, they're the ones that are um, really evolving their mindset and, the, and their uh, their business models to include several different types of production models. And that's why they're becoming so successful and really getting what uh, the consumer their consumer wants to them in a, in a very, very short amount of time. Yeah. I think there's been a lot of talk around how to make more stuff and how to produce a lot more of that. And if you look at even like to your example of the car industry, the car industry went to have, you know, smarter vehicles and more customized vehicles. And now they're shifting to vehicle as a service, right? Wheels for you, cars to go, Uber. And I think that is where you start to get into circular economy business models or sharing economy business models that actually start to fundamentally change the need for more production, more stuff, um, and start to move it into more um, symbiotic or circular models. And so I think to the fashion industry's transition, if you look at the other industries who maybe on the technical front have been slightly ahead, the next shift for fashion is really not just about that more production, but rather full business model transformation. How do we actually start to look at not just the production of the product, but the movement of that product after sale? And I think we're seeing this in really interesting ways with the brands that we work with. Um, and instead of actually just selling a product once, which is has inherently been how the fashion industry exists, you make a ton of products so you can sell as many as possible. How can a brand sell that product three, four, five times? Right? If you look at the 
resale models of uh, VF Group, of Patagonia, they are profitable and growing 200% monthly, right? The, the cheapest way for these companies to make money is to actually resell a product that they've already made. You know, so these business models are actually what we call closed loop because those products get to be reused. Ultimately, the brands get the products back so they can start to recycle those materials and use them again. So I think it's at an exciting stage for the industry in that how do we actually use the intelligence, the data, and the technology we have to drive this this business model shift. And that is actually also what we're seeing from the data that we gather is that the customer, those business models are incredibly valuable. One, they build a more meaningful relationship to the brand because they can continue that conversation with the brand. They can, you know, 30% of the products that are returned actually come back with a story and then the brand can engage with the customer again and introduce them to another product or design something that better meets their needs. Um, so I think it's an exciting shift, and to your point, like following the automotive industry, how can that shift move into service-oriented and circular models? Well, and there's other cool technology that's helping facilitate it too, like Grailed and StockX, which are almost kind of, StockX especially, kind of gamifying re reuse or resale. What do they um, do? So Grailed is, is kind of like a, a digital beacon's closet almost. <laughs> so, so what's interesting is that I saw a lot of people used to use eBay to resell different sort of like vintage Jean-Paul Gaultier and everything. And now Grailed's built an app where you, know, you can go on, you can filter by a lot of like streetwear, hypey type stuff um, and, and buy it, have it shipped to you and they actually will verify it too, which you know, I think is a really important piece of making this work. If, if any of you were at NRF um, last week, we had basically for a brand that we work with, we created digital identities for all of the products, and then we were able to automate resale. So the customer came back in with the product, held it in front of the RFID reader. The product was instantly identified. They were offered a buyback price based on a combination of the, you know, because we can identify the product, they're offered a buyback price based on the MSRP and the current quality of the product. And automatically, that product can be repurchased back, designated for recycle, and then that customer can is bought into that model. And so these technologies that we can, you know, that we power basically to design a fully closed loop business model, to automate resale, to make it more economically viable for companies to, to keep the products that they make in circulation are here today. And so I think it's a really exciting time to, as the customer behavior pattern is simultaneously changing. I'm curious, what do, um, and the customers are excited about that and they're like aware of all their options. So outside of a trade show type situation, like what they can do with those products and where they can bring them. Are they like yeah. open to being educated about that type of stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of the brands that we work with today already have a partner in place. So for example, a brand that already has an existing resale model, but it functions very rudimentary. Like in order for a reseller today, or like for the North Face, let's say, to run their resale program, it's run by a company called the Renewal Workshop. And the Renewal Workshop receives the product. It takes them, to your point, an hour to ID the product, find out, you know, which was this product's original name? What's the color? 
type manually type all this information in, retake the photos, get it online, that's not like a business. So resale today operates as like a nice sustainability initiative. But now as the brands can say, oh wow, if when we create products, we identify them, not just identify them to the moment they're sold, but if we embed data in them, that means that those products become intelligent assets and we can communicate with them after they're sold. So that those, like today, brands make products and they're essentially lost to them. They have no way to communicate to the items that they produce. And as they start to embed intelligence in them, they can become connected with those products and essentially, that's the ability to monetize them, um, to monetize them again and again across the life cycle. And to the customer behavior pattern, I think what's interesting is people are now seeing apparel as an asset that they buy, right? So it shows that people who know that they can resell a product will actually buy that product because it's not just money that you're throwing in the trash. You know, if you view your products as assets, you take better care of them, and then you return them, you get that money back, and you use that somewhere else. So it's totally 100% aligned with the customer's value and creates more of an engagement around purchasing. Um, yeah, just to play devil's advocate, but you know I'm, I'm on your team. So when you talk about... Um you know, having all these digital assets and from the incipiency of the garment, um, I think it makes total sense when you're thinking about the whole life cycle of a product. But it's something that I hear a lot are concerns about data security and data privacy. Um, so I think most people are familiar with um, Europe's GDPR, Global Data Protection Regulation. Um, and so that applies to... I agree. <laughs> Yeah. That's why every site has an annoying <laughs> pop-up when you get on it now. Yeah, it's because Europe will uh, shut your company down if you yeah. don't have that. And, but it's, it's, a really, it's an amazing piece of legislation um, that affects the whole world. Um, and so um, the way that I, I view that regulation is it's basically taking data and making it your own um, you know, personal asset to, to barter. And then you decide what happens with your data rather than when you previously would click, I agree, people, there is companies that are profiting off of your data. So I think of it as like a paradigm shift, but I'd be curious to see how you know you guys are engaging with consumers and um, addressing those types of concerns and really just reassuring people that we're collecting these data so that we can make this whole thing circular. So you can see this as an asset, not throw it into a landfill and understand that everything has a value and that hopefully at the end of its life with you, you can maintain that value. So yeah. just, yeah, curious about data. So there's a really big difference between customer data, which is protected by GDPR, and product data, right? If you can come up to the QR code on this sweater and scan it and know it's material content, that is not my personal data, right? Um, and I would have to basically say, okay, here, you can scan this. It's like no one's really afraid of the barcode right now. RFID, um, though. Ooh. Yeah. When you get into other forms of identifiers, like R is everyone familiar with RFID? Yeah, so RFID being like the next generation barcode, right? Essentially, that is a chip that's on every H&M, um, Inditex, you know, every major brand that sells a product today has RFID in the hang tag. And so basically, RFID can be read by an RFID reader without line of sight. So it means that you can scan, you know, 100 products in the stockroom and ID all of those. So as RFID becomes embedded into a product, 
that would be a fear that how can someone access that ID? But ultimately, these technologies are also call and response. And so basically, you have to know the number to access the number. So it's not as though these products just are actively transmitting. And I think what's the most important and what is a violation of GDPR is to marry a customer's data with the product. Like a brand cannot legally say that Natasha bought this sweater and then marry those identities. What we are very focused in, in on... In Europe, here, here you can yeah. still do that. No, you still need consent. Oh, really? Yeah. You have to be transparent about it. Okay. Yeah. Is that just for email addresses or...? Um, no, like the customer identity with the product yeah. ID. Okay. Y yeah, yeah. That's, and that's new. Is that new? I think that's new. I don't think we have that. Oh, none of the brands will allow... Because yeah. they operate in Europe. But I think no U.S. companies too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it also could just Any be that, in the audience? that they see the need not to do that because it's like, yeah, would cause conflict. Yeah. Right. And all the companies that we work with are GDPR compliant globally anyway because you don't know when a European customer is walking into your store, necessarily. So you, does that make sense? So GDPR yeah. pr protects Europeans even if they're at a U.S store. So if you're a company that's operating in the U.S., you don't know who's European and who's not when they walk into your store, so you're GDPR compliant yeah. anyway, really. It's like HIPAA for everything. You, yeah. you don't want to violate exactly. GDPR if you want to do any business in Europe. Exactly. Andrew, you had something? Well, yeah, I was one, one fun sort of like real-world example we tested um, was we did a collaboration with this uh, Chinese rapper named Pharaoh, and um, we put an NFC care label in every garment. And so um, NFC is, is the technology that powers like Apple Pay or Samsung Pay and whatnot. It's near field communication. Exactly. Like it's short range radio stuff. Exactly. So, so you don't have to have line of sight, but you do have to have the proximity, which, you know, I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Um, but what you could do is uh, you could take your phone to the care label and we had embedded his um, new music video. And so the only way for him to, or for his fans to see his new music video was to buy one of his products and, and get one of these. And we kind of had this, so the tests were great, um, and that was pretty exciting. So we had this um, idea that we're playing around with, which is just like embedding that in every Cala product and, you know, enabling the, um, the designers that use Cala to basically, through their own sort of like experience, show, you know, where the product was made, when it was made, and start adding some of that, um, that content to it. Um, but what I think would make it really fun would be like a Grailed integration. So then it's like, oh, do you want to resell it? Great, press this button, we'll pull in the product photography, and uh, you're ready to sell it. Or maybe partnering with, you know, a sort of like end of use type partner where made it really, what I found with consumers is like, if you make it easy as shit, then they'll do it. And if yeah. you don't, they're going to throw it away. So each of these little chips that you put into clothing, um, it seems dangerous if the numbers are unique for that individual piece of clothing. If that style has the same code number, that's fine. But if that style and each piece of it has a unique code number, then you can start to track individual people, and that gets scary. But then against that, if you're trying to scan an entire warehouse based on NFC or RFID, if the numbers aren't unique, you can never count them all because there's 500 in that box, but they respond back at different intervals, so when you try to scan the box, it doesn't 
tell That's you why how many progress are in is there. so hard. It's it's it gets complicated. There's a lot of uh, math well, and logistics I can to it. Add one thing to that because basically when we codified the circular ID protocol, which is exactly what you're talking about, how do we start to identify products after sale? You actually need to do item level ID numbers. And you need every item to be unique. So the reason for that is part of the reason why it's so hard for brands to shift their business model. It's so hard for them to shift to, shift to rental, for example, because today they only track products at a SKU level. When you're renting a product, SKUs are not enough because you have a 1,000 of that black dress, one went out on Tuesday, someone spilled wine on that one. So each one becomes a snowflake, right? So when you look at starting to power business models that rely on managing products after point of sale, like from, from production to point of sale, those thousand black dresses are the same. After rental or after resale, they're different. So they start to have their own life cycle. So if fashion wants to transition to circular economy business models, start to manage every product sustainably, start to bring transparency and accountability to products after point of sale, they need to start individual item IDs. But that's not to say that that individual item ID gets married to a customer ID. Right. Okay, so um, let's hop into sourcing and costing. Um, are you all seeing any interesting startups in that space? I mean, we, we've had a bunch of, of progress there with like um, SourceMap, which, which started a couple of years ago, and that's ha- helping a lot of the big companies move along. Um, what's new in that space? I mean, I don't know about brand new or if this would specifically be sourcing, but um, one of my favorite tools I've seen is the the HIG MSI. That might be more of like the design. What um, is it? Uh, the HIG MSI is the Material Sustainability Index. Um, and so designers can, or anyone can go on to basically this website and it uses LCA data, life cycle assessment data. And so basically if you're kind of torn between two different fabrics or materials and you don't know um, which one you might want to use, maybe they have similar properties, um, this tool will allow you to see the impact um, in terms of the environment mostly. They also have some social factors on there as well, but you can blend different materials um, and basically just see what the what the impact is. So um, you're making a smarter or a more informed deci- decision about um, what types of materials you're going to be sourcing. Okay. Andrew, for pricing, your your tool is... We're changing really everything. Very yes. cool. Yeah. So you you give people a little interface instead of a quote and the interface you can roll the numbers up and down for small medium large extra large and the price changes immediately yeah so with very very small amounts of data um, so you can submit a design with just like a reference image or a, a simple sketch um, something that tells us a little bit it could be a garment reference for the material you want to use and then within 24 hours we'll give you the full economics of the entire collection um, so this includes everything, technical design, pattern making, material sourcing, e-commerce product photography, all of the shipping back and forth, your bulk production. Um, and what this does is this, for the first time ever, gives designers at the very beginning the full economics. And, and it ties it to the complexity of the product um, and the number of units. And you don't have a minimum on your system. Exactly. So this is where I think our fundamental like, biggest impact on sustainability is today is empowering designers to only produce what they think they can sell, not what their manufacturer's minimums are. And this is really important 
because so many young brands come to us and they've, you know, they've found one good factory and that's all that they're ever trying to do. But one good factory puts you in this position where, you know, you're kind of at their mercy. Um, and so if they decide that, you know, they want to increase their minimums, you're just going to have to make it. Yeah, and just for... Um just to add to that, I think there's some other really interesting things happening from like a costing and fabric estimation perspective too. Um, so for us at Lectra, for example, just building onto um, the the block of our 2D and 3D software and technology, we've um, really invested in adding cloud applications on top of the, for example, 2D um, pattern making solution where with one click, um, any change to a pattern can be quickly estimated in terms of fabric consumption. So everything um, that you that used to take, you'd have to go to your marker maker and they would have to send you new markers and then there, you kind of like manually cost and estimate how much fabric you actually need to produce. Um, that all happens in the cloud in a matter of minutes now. So there's no more kind of going back and forth and taking days to estimate the effect on uh, cost and, and fabric consumption just for one pattern change or many, many pattern changes. So that's um, you know just streamlining that process so that brands and designers and pattern makers and product developers can really see the effect on on cost and fabric um, almost immediately and long before production or even fabric purchase, which really helps reduce waste um, and save a lot of money, of course. And then from a pricing perspective, um, from a consumer pricing and facing perspective, we actually. Um, just announced this a few months ago, but we acquired a really exciting startup called Retfuse um, from Belgium. And we'll be talking more about that later this year. But their technology is really incredible because it basically helps you um, source data and information about your competitor's pricing structure and um, what's selling out, what's staying on their websites for too long, um, and really be able to kind of judge the demand there, as well as really give you data and information on pricing uh, strategy um, automatically. So that's a cloud-based, subscription-based service that will be um, fully launching in North America later this year, but could have some really interesting effects on, especially from an e-commerce perspective, um, how, how companies do business and price there. Super interesting. Looking for older episodes of American Fashion Podcast? Well, we actually ran out of space in our feed, so we have archived them. And you can find the archive at AmericanFashionPodcast.com. Archive is in the main menu, and that'll take you over to a platform where you can uh, subscribe to the archive and uh, support the show. That's AmericanFashionPodcast.com for uh, all the past episodes. So let's talk about manufacturing and production because we're a little short on time now, even though we had 90 minutes. Manufacturing and production, you obviously manufacture a lot of things that manufacture things. Um, it seems like these... When we outsourced production to the Far East and other places, we also sold our machines to them. And a lot of factories overseas are still using the machines we sold them in the 80s and 90s. And so the digital tools, replacing those systems and, and getting the digital tools into the cycle is a, a big cost jump. I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that this allows us to build, 
build more factories here in the United States, reopen production so it's nimble production, it's, it's local, local is sustainable. Um, what are you seeing in that space? Um, well, from a global perspective, I think there's been, first of all, in, if we're talking about China, which we usually are talking about China when we talk about mass production, especially of apparel, um, there's been very large government initiatives and subsidies to really not only bring their manufacturing up to speed with the rest of the world, but like surpass it significantly. Um, so, you know, they might have been using our machines a few years ago, but they are not using our machines anymore. Well, China, um, China has jumped, but but a lot of those machines then went to other countries. They sold yes. them. Um, so then they, they have found their way into Vietnam um, and other new sourcing kind of hotspots now. I think from a, from a Western Hemisphere production um, kind of viewpoint, we have a lot of conversations with local manufacturers that go like this. They're like, well, we're not going to invest in automation technology because we don't have the volume and we're waiting for the volume to come back from China. And we say, if you're going to wait for the volume to come back from China, you could be waiting forever. So that volume is not coming back. Nimble production is what the future correct. Holds. And 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 really, what we say is, it's not about competing with China on a mass level. It's about offering value-added services that brands and retailers need locally and in in this hemisphere, um, like quick turn. Uh, replenishment closer to their markets, small batch production, on-demand, uh, on made-to-order, personalized and customized product um, that consumers are demanding more and more of, but we just don't have those capabilities. We're, that's changing, um, especially in the last year or so. But those are that's really the opportunity for manufacturing in North America, whether we're talking about Mexico or, or the U.S. Um, Canada is a little bit different because they've been vertical for a long time. But um, that's really where I think the conversation needs to be. It's not about how do we compete and, and really set up like mass production facilities to compete with China. That's, I think, the wrong... Well, we know that that's the wrong approach, really. Yeah. What's interesting is that... Uh, have you heard of Sobot... Yeah. So it's a pretty cool company that has built like automated, you know, actual like sewing of T-shirts, and um, their I guess first two years of production is actually going to a, a, a Chinese company that's putting a location in um, I think Alabama or North Carolina or something like that. So it's yeah. kind of interesting. They're within a couple hours drive of most of the United States population by putting the factory there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the Sobots are not perfect yet. They, like they're getting very good at T-shirts. It's mass but, production. They can do the yeah. same exact thing. They're they're, pl- they're they're replacing the massive production line. They can do yeah. the same thing a million times. Um, and one of the problems with produ- producing d- domestically, um, in which obviously we're super you know looking for great partners. So if anyone's doing great domestic production, hit me up. Um, what's interesting is like knitting right now. So, you know, there's a, a huge factory in St. Louis, bought, like, all the brand new, you know, Shibaseki machines, and so they can do, like, you know, full garment knitting and stuff like that, which is really cool, but, like, if I'm looking at everyone here, like, I see a few sweaters, but, like, you know, that's, that's it. And so, when it comes to actual materials, so many of the high-quality materials are still being produced internationally, and so even if we had a facility in, uh, in New York with all the amazing Lectra, um, you know, cutting machines and everything like that, 
we're still going to have to be importing, you know, a lot of the, the materials there. And so um, it's definitely something that's going to happen at some point, um, but uh, it's going to be a bit of a, a struggle to get there, I think. So kind of blue sky science fiction, where we're going, um, my hope is that we move from this thing where all of the technology and infrastructure is in the big cities and we actually look at the smaller towns and we connect them and we're able to have smart, educated people in small towns again. Uh, I mean, there was such a brain drain of, I can't work here. I've got a college degree, but I have to go somewhere else. Even though this is home, I've got to go to New York. I've got to go to Atlanta. Um, if we can reverse that using technology and, and make it better for people to live, I think that the cities are, are not the best place for people to live. Um, if we can move back toward that kind of uh, agrarian thing enabled by technology so people are still connected, it, it'll be kind of a better world and, and we can have the, the nimble production in smaller places. Yeah. Here's what I think it looks like. I could be completely wrong here, but I yeah. think that mobile design that may look a lot like Tinder or something, where you're where basically you're flipping back and forth on ideas and you know iterating towards that design vision that's in your mind, powered by AI and, and machine learning, of course, um, connected with a network of fully automated apparel facilities outside of major markets, just like Amazon has fulfillment centers. And I think that is where you know we finally that's that's that sort of like dream scenario is like you come up with an idea on the way home. You can flip it on, post it on your gram or whatever people are using then, and if people start buying it, it just starts getting made close to them. Yeah, Not too far from that, honestly. I mean, I think, um, again, back to the on-demand piece, like that technology to uh, connect to your point of sale and then automate the entire process and everything that happens with your patterns and your marker making and being and preparing an order for cutting is like we can do that today. I think the, the design, mobile design piece um, and connecting all of that, I mean, we're not that far off, which I think is really exciting and pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah. I kind of wanted to slip into sales, distribution, and logistics and the, the analytics and things like that. We, we did... We've spent a lot of time talking about these things. Um, this idea of retargeting customers, um, being able to, to track who your customers are. Um, certainly the, the, the emerging designers that are digital first and, and not going to wholesale immediately, um, their mailing list is their, their life. Um, and being able to, to show people things that they might also want is, is very important. Um, what are you seeing in that space? It's tough for, for small brands, I think, because, you know, you have, like, MailChimp and um, different plugins to Shopify, but most small brands can't afford to put in a, you know, $1,000 a month type system. Um, and so it is really kind of, like, rudimentary. It's, you know, let's make sure we're capturing the emails on the website. Some of the brands we work with haven't even done that yet. Um, and then, you know, let's come up with, you know, some sort of targeting based on, you know, past purchases and purchases and things like that. Um, but what we've kind of seen is like, this is an area where um, there, there, there's starting to be some interesting solutions. Clavio is an interesting one. Um, but again, you know, what, when you're... What is it? A Clavio. Okay. Don't it's kind of like MailChimp as well. Okay. Um, and, and kind of you can help, you can set up sort of like different email campaigns and things like that. But the problem we always find is like, as, you know, a, t a small team of maybe like two to five people, um, 
you know, you don't have the opportunity to hire a marketing expert. And so, you know, how can you sort of like supplement, um, you know, what you're trying to do with, with other people in your network? And so for our sort of like highest tier of subscription, um, which is not cheap, but we also provide uh, a professional ad buying team to come in and basically, you know, look at all of your sales and, and really optimize your, your paid marketing. Okay. Uh, questions from the audience? Anybody? Yes. I like the dual coverage here. That's good. Hi. I have a question for Tia and Andrew. Um, two separate questions. Tia, you were saying that you know we're not that far from the dream where there's connected manufacturing all over the U.S., but then earlier you said every time you try to convince a U.S. manufacturer, they say, well, we're waiting for the volume. So what do you think needs to happen? Does it need to be governmental? Like, what has to happen to convince? Or Please, gonna, no. Or does, it, or does it need to be, like, just these old manufacturers are going to close and brand new businesses are going to start to serve that market? What do you think? Yeah, so I think it's a classic, like, what came for, like, chicken, egg, vicious, like, like cycle um, situation where we have brands and retailers saying, well, we can't produce in the Western Hemisphere because there's no factories with the capabilities and technology. And the manufacturers are saying, well, we can't invest in the technology. So it's like, you know what I mean? It's, it goes around in circles. Um, but I think just based on the conversations and what we're seeing all over the world, but even in North America, that mindset is changing very quickly. I think manufacturers, for example, we did a survey of the industry with Sourcing Journal, um, where we had some of the top executives for brands and retailers um, basically surveyed to ask, well, why aren't you implementing on demand, or are you thinking about it, or you know, how are you working towards uh, going from a supply chain to a demand chain? And they said that they are actively thinking or already investing in those types of business models. Um, some of them have already identified manufacturers in the Western Hemisphere that can produce in that manner. And they're basically waiting for manufacturers to really implement the technology. And when we share that data and that information with the manufacturing industry here, I think it really, like, the light bulb has come on. Um, so we've spent over a year, even me, myself, having this conversation and kind of, like, preaching the gospel, as I like to say, but I think those, again, those light bulbs are really being turned on and and um, the reality is, is that brands and retailers like already have those needs. They retailers need quick turn replenishment, and there are manufacturers right now in the U.S. that are providing those services. And and so we're definitely moving that way. Um, it's taken a lot of education, a lot of data, a lot of surveys, a lot of information. But I think we're we're definitely moving in the right direction. And the big retailers also kind of got drunk on bulk orders, like they, they overdid it, yeah. and it kind of killed them. And low labor costs. Yep. Um, I am obsessed with what Call is doing. I think it's incredible. I haven't used Thank the, you. I haven't used the program yet, but just reading all about it, and I did listen to your podcast. Um, specifically, the the point of being able to price something from the very beginning. I've I'm in production management, and sample development, and like work with lots of factories, and they think this is impossible. <laughs> like they don't. False. Yeah, it, clearly it isn't. So I'm wondering, like you say, it takes 24 hours, like. What's happening? Are, are humans involved, or is this all algorithmic? <laughs> <laughs> it will be all algor algorithmic soon. Um, but if you can imagine, like, you could take a photo of us up here and say, you know, you want to make her sweater, but you want it to be in green, and that would be all that we need to start from. And so there is a, a human review piece, but what we've managed to do is, is break it down to just, like, three inputs. So um, the complexity, um, the num or not the number of units, because that's inputted, complexity, um, the type of product, and any processes like 
embroidery, prints, distressing, things like that. And so we basically built our own algorithm with inputs from these 60 different factories that we've worked with, as well as um, you know the thousands of projects that we've done so far. And so it's constantly like iterating, getting smarter and smarter. And so um, the other things we look at are like the time of year. So things are actually in our algorithm more expensive right now because um, you know 25 or 40% of our factories are offline right now for, for Chinese New Year. Um, and then what we do is we basically, we set that price and we give it to you, which we consider to be sort of like a fair market price based on the number of units and the complexity. And then we'll actually bid it out to the best fit factories based on the, the type of product, the complexity, the number of units. So, so you give the supplier price and then you go to the factories and they say, I can do it for that price. Exactly. So what we did was we took the whole two weeks of quoting back and forth um, and we took that out of it. And the, the benefit to the factories is that when we send a bid to the factory, not only are we telling them, you know, how much it's going to be per unit, but all of the details are, are fully spec'd out in our platform. So it's not, you know, a thousand emails back and forth with a new designer. It's just like execute this and for $4,200. And so they can decide, accept or reject. And if they reject it, we ask them, you know, why missing details, too short of a timeline, too, you know, low of a price. Um, and so we're constantly using that data to, to improve the pricing. Okay, uh, next question. Yes. Man, it's cold up and, here. And uh, yeah. please, please say who you are and, and what you do also. Oh, uh, my name is Si Chen. Um, I am a, the owner and designer of a new startup company. So I really want to ask from the perspective. Thank you. Uh, of, uh, from a startup and small business perspective, like how do you recommend we, from day one, building the nimbleness into the business? And also, on the contrary, on the reverse side, like from the small scale um, and from the lack of resources and lack of negotiation power, that comes the negative side. So how do we participate in the conversation of sustainability, transparency, um, and maybe even blockchain? Um, you know, how do we go about that? As a fashion startup, don't worry about blockchain. It's not here yet. Um, it's, it's working for the big enterprise companies right now. They're starting to figure it out, but you do not need to worry about blockchain yet. I think I mean, that's fair. Yeah. I think that, I mean, blockchain, I, I think, might be an option for any any size business. There are some examples of, you know, smaller companies like Martine, Yarlgaard. Um, that, that was an experiment paid for by universities. Yeah. So, but I mean, I think blockchain would be a good use case if you know your entire supply chain. Um, so that's, I mean, just that's one option. But I mean, if you're talking about sustainability, I think that the the sad truth is we have enough garments in the world in existence already and if you're if you are it's true i mean no one wants to hear that but it's a, it's a big system that has memory and inertia um and so i would say like you can look at circular models keeping things in reuse um utilizing technology to reduce waste to make manufacturing um more streamlined there's lots of um, technologies that can assist with that, like decision support systems um, in terms of, but I mean, you also have the realities of having to, to pay for these types of things, but I mean, from a sustainability perspective, I'd say, you know, looking at circular um, products as a service type of models would be a, a good place to start and making sure that you understand and can trace your entire supply chain and 
understanding the impacts of any type of procurement that you make. So just by virtue of anyone's existence, you're going to have an impact. Um, and so the best you can really do is compare A to B. So if you're going to procure cotton, you know, maybe it's better cotton, maybe it's organic cotton, maybe you're not blending it with spandex so that it can go to recycling, um, things like that. So just thinking... Um, thinking long-term and throughout the entire supply chain, including end-of-life. Yeah. As a uh, startup guy myself, I would say before you do anything, figure out who's your customer, how are you going to get the product to them, is there a need, as you mentioned, there's so many products that already exist, is there a need for your product and your vision, um, and is what you're doing on a sort of like sustainability standpoint and sourcing standpoint going to result in a product that that customer is willing to buy at that price point. What we see a ton of times is that, you know, designers come out with, you know, no one's ever heard of their brand and they're trying to sell a trench coat for like $900. And it's like, I know that it cost you 400, but you know, someone's going to buy the Balenciaga or the, the Dior trench over yours every single time. Unless and you so, take pre-orders like that. That's the trick. If you, if you, don't make anything until you know someone is going exactly. to buy it. That's the new model. It's, I have 500 existing customers, I have them on a mailing list, and I have metrics that show me that 25% will buy every new product, half of every product I new put out, then you can start to order things in advance. But sure. right now, you, you, you don't wanna make things unless you know somebody's gonna buy it. Not, I think somebody's gonna buy this, I know these specific people are going to purchase this or have like 25% or higher chance of purchasing it based on previous behavior. Yeah. Um, you you got to do the math um, and, and do the homework on creating your spreadsheets and things. Please upgrade to databases as soon as possible because the spreadsheets will bog you down. But, but get started with a spreadsheet. And, and yeah. if you don't know how to use a spreadsheet, that's the first thing you should learn to learn Preach. about moving forward Preach. with fashion technology. <laughs> Anything is possible with Excel. Yeah, yeah. J just basic Excel formulas will get you so far in getting ahead of other fashion businesses because people aren't doing the math for their own companies and it makes no sense. 100%. And I also think like when we talk, and I keep saying this because on-demand is a solution, but what you're talking about, you said... Um, from a startup, nimble, financial perspective, from a sustainability perspective, when you start really with the mindset behind why you're doing what you're doing and how you're going to get that pr product to the end consumer in like, the most streamlined, efficient, financially like solvent way, not only for you, but also for them, that really kind of takes you back to on-demand. So from a financial perspective, if you're not producing a product until it's already sold, on a basic level, you're going from cost per unit to cost per unit sold, which is, from a financial standpoint, incredibly impactful on your cash flow. Um, then you're also talking about sustainability. So you're not creating products that you know people don't want that end up in a landfill um, a month after you produce them. So I think it's really about that mindset from the beginning behind your business model and your supply chain. Um, having visibility into your supply chain, I think, is really, really important. So not overcomplicating things just because, um, you know, there's other brands who use those people. And if it doesn't make sense for you, I would say just be really careful about who you work with and again, just from the beginning, really think about what matters and what makes sense for, 
from a startup perspective and also to your end consumer. Yeah, and don't be producing anything more than like a quarter ahead as a startup. Like three months out is the most you want to try to project and throw money at. Beyond that, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what you will learn in those three months. So work with factories and providers like Cala. And, and there's so many systems here that you can be using and, and playing with. But um, pick one that, that you like and, and go with it. But I think the, the deciding factor should be I can get this in less than three months dependably over and over um, to move forward. I think we have time for one more question. Yeah. Thank you. Um, my name is Kiara, and I'm the owner of SL Career Studio. We focus on career and entrepreneurship development. Um, one of the things that I help startups understand is um, basically what you guys just finished talking about is how do you cut your costs? Um, with Cal in particular, um, Andrew, do you plan to branch out to like the shoe industry and jewelry industry as well? Um, because a lot of my startup companies that's under our um, umbrella, they need help with in those industries as well. So we right now we average ten weeks from when you press the button until you can start selling your your products, and we do that within apparel, socks. Um, sunglasses, accessories, and so we, we're doing some jewelry and things like that already. Um, I love footwear, and the footwear supply chain is extremely, um, not even necessarily complicated, but there's just parts of it that make doing things quickly um, really, you know, incapable or make it difficult to do that. And so we won't actually bring a supply chain onto our platform until we can execute it in sort of like the Cala manner, um, which is, you know, being able to produce only what you actually think you can sell, um, low minimums for like an affordable price. Um, but it's something that uh, we're working on with the, the guys that um, help kick off easy on a strategy. Um, so hopefully sometime in 2021, we'll be able to do footwear. Okay, I want to thank everybody who came and, and listened. And if you have more questions, we'll kind of be around. And, and thank you to the panel for uh, taking the time to be here. Uh, such amazing insight here. Um, have fun at Text World. I'm Charles Beck with Listen to American Fashion Podcast every week. Definitely listen to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to American Fashion Podcast. On our website, AmericanFashionPodcast.com, you can find our Be a Guest form, as well as a sign-up page for invitations to our live shows, and a new feature, The Archives. With roughly 250 episodes published, the old shows don't fit in our feed anymore, so we've made them available for a nominal fee. Please continue the conversation online. On Twitter, we are at AFPOD, and on Instagram, we are at American Fashion Show. And I personally am at Fashion Tech Guru on just about everything. For direct comments, give us a call at 646-979-8709, that's our voicemail line, or email info at AmericanFashionPodcast.com. American Fashion Podcast is produced by Mouth Media Network, which holds the copyright to this and all other episodes, all rights reserved. Subsist, friends, keep making things beautiful, remain in force. I'm Charles Beckwith, and we'll talk to you again next week. This has been Fashion Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2020. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at fashionisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thank you for listening.
This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.